nothing I could do for him. Well, I said there's nothing I can do. I saw it. What? What you want, Ed Hardy? Say it. Say it. podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Hello, and welcome back to that podcast at the intersection of faith and fear, where every week especially this year, and especially this episode, we discuss what scares us in order to find what saves us. This is the fear of God. Speaking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse, and typically with me is fellow co-host Reed Lackey. And he was, he was here, guys, but he was in a bit of a mood. And you know, Lackey in a mood is not we, you know, you got to let him have a space. So he said he needed to blow off some steam on his motorbike. And when I said, I didn't think you had a motorbike, he got even more huffy, bike joke, and said he was just going to go play Excite Bike on his Nintendo Classic instead, his NES Classic. I'm like, okay, you know, whatever you need, whatever you need, man, look out for kids. In the meantime, allow me to welcome you, constant listeners, into our big series for the year, What Scares Us Slash What Saves Us, a series defined by you. You've been submitting your stories of films and media that instilled or stoked a certain fearful imagining in you, and we are going to be covering them here on the show starting today. Super exciting. This week, everyone, we are going to be excavating the fragile psyche of our own Dr. Riedenstein with his submission, Pumpkinhead. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. Oh, because here at the Fear of God, we explore. We don't explain except for right now. When I explain that you can listen to the Fear of God at your nearest podcast platform, you can watch the Fear of God on the old YouTube, and you can browse the Fear of God on the web at thefearofgodpodcast.com while you will find Reed. Hey, buddy. No. 
trying to create my own Doppler effect. I don't know if it worked. Uh, but, uh, you know, the the little uh, application that I'm using just asked me, are you playing music right now? I just saw that. I was No, that's Zoom, the little application. It's the worldwide global phenomenon called Zoom. I've never seen that before. And then it said, set up a professional audio mechanism. Like, what in the world? No, I, was not, I guess I just, you know, have those melodic tones whenever I'm trying to intimate a motorcycle. And so, you know, there's, yeah, yeah that, there yeah. it is. There it is. There it was. There it is. There it was. There it went. There it ran over a poor child. Oh, Riri. man. Hi. Riri. Hey, buddy. We're starting. We're I here. can't believe it. I can't believe what it. What scares us? This series. Starting with you. I'm, I'm so scared. So this is, uh, this, is a, this is a great series. I'm really looking forward to diving into some of these. We've had some great submissions from listeners. Some of these films I haven't seen, uh, some of the films I haven't seen in a really long time, and some of them I've been itching to get to on the pod. So uh, it's going to be a it's going to be a grand old a grand old time. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, so yeah, and I'm really excited to dive into uh, to this week's because this is one of my favorite horror films, and uh, we're not talking about it yet, but because uh, you know probably have a little business to do first. But uh, but yeah, that's uh, it's business time. It is it's business time. It's business. <laughs> <laughs> it's business time. I'm just seeing if it's going to be like, do you want to play some audio? Oh. Are you going to pay for that? <laughs> <laughs> um. So, yeah, it's business time. So, Reed, you, we together, and then you put the finishing touches on a little promotional spot. Look at us. I can't believe it. That's awesome. We're, it's so awesome. We're bona fide. <laughs> We got, I'm a dapper Dan, man. <laughs> I am the GD Pata Familius. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we've got a commercial. You can go That's to your, uh, where I know it lives is on iTunes right at the top of the feed. It says Fear of God podcast promo. It's like it's a little commercial. You can share it with your friends. Share it with your mama. Share it with your daddy. It's amazing. Uh, let people know the show exists. And be like, this is that thing, guys, that I've been telling you about for four years, but I didn't want to share a two-hour show with you. So here's that. <laughs> 30 seconds. It's like me watching a 30-minute TV show. You'll be like, oh, I can do this. Love it. I can 30 do 30 seconds, seconds of Reed and Nathan. No Anybody problem. can endure that. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that has happened. That is in your feed. That is a thing we would love if you would go share with people. Absolutely. So, Reed, we're starting this new series. Are there ways? Are we still after things for yes. people for so, the series? Uh, so we're starting right now, and we already have a lot of the uh, episodes that we're going to cover programmed already, but it is never too late to go to the thefearofgodpodcast.com, click on the banner on the top, and submit your own edition of what scares you. We want to hear your personal stories about any media, whether that be film, TV, books, music, anything that kind of freaked you out or gives you the heebie-jeebies, we want to hear the story about it. And you can use that platform as an opportunity to pitch to us things that you would like for us to cover on the show. We would uh, love that. And I don't think, even after this series, I don't think that avenue is really going to go away. You're going to have a platform to be able to say, hey, uh, Fear of God hosts, we would really love for you to cover this thing. Uh, so uh, by all means, go to the thefearofgodpodcast.com. Tell us what scares you. You've got plenty of time still. Uh, we've got lots of submissions already. But we could always use more. So, uh, so yeah. By all means, go and uh, submit that, and and uh, yeah, that's it. And you, you, you're the lucky guy. We drew your name out of the hat for that's this week, right? Um, we do two quick bullet points. One um, is the Facebook group. Come join the Facebook yes, group where we please. have 
lovely ribald conversation, uh, specifically around Dave Courtney's disappointment over not covering the relic for yeah, 2020, Madden, 2020, we should, Last 2.0. week's episode got so much heat for all the wrong reasons. Everybody was like, everybody was like, what? And we, Wait a minute. And, and I, got a, I got a shout out to our listener, Jacob, who was like, um, he was like, yeah, I, I, I actually went to Redbox to pick up a movie that they weren't covering, you know, and everything. And I just felt, I felt so bad because I was like, oh my gosh, like, I, 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 I'm really like humbled that anybody would try to like pre-prep for the show because we always ask you to and everything but i just felt so bad that they did that and we promise we'll make it up at some then point we burned him and now he's like nah, not anymore <laughs> done he's like nope no more now i'm gonna wait till day of release and then i'm not listening to you until later but uh but no it was uh it was fun in the facebook group it was fun that was, was so come join the facebook group we have a grand old time uh sometimes at each other's expense um also riri we hit 79 on the reviews. I couldn't believe it. I we couldn't believe it. we got a, I got, we got a new review. I was like, it was like, we I've asked, gotten real complacent. I'm like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> then you're like, 79. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> it's like a Christmas miracle in February. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that was, uh, that was very, very kind of, uh, it was, it was lovely. And, and you and I are now prepping for our fear of God stage production of uh, Muppets Christmas Carol featuring Lackey and Nady. It's amazing. Oh. <laughs> Lackey and Nady. <laughs> Change! <laughs> uh, so yes, go leave an iTunes beautiful. review um, and just email us your suggestion for what should be on the 2021-2022 Fog Theater production season. Uh, Riri, I haven't asked you this in a while, but I just got to know. What you watching? <laughs> what you reading? So much. What are you listening to? Oh my gosh, I hadn't I hadn't heard it in the reel in I so know. long because we've been I using just, so many listeners. I was scouring a minute ago. I was like, nah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go for it. <laughs> just <gonna laughs> just go for all time's sake. Oh yeah. my gosh, that was so lovely to Look hear. Look at that. It's, it's good to have you back. I'm back. Yeah, it's good to have you back. So um, in answer to your question, yeah, reading so much. I'm loving it. Um, so uh, the book that I wanted to mention for this week is, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just, I've been, I've been watching TV shows too. It's all been about the Muppet show lately, but my, um, on Disney plus, but my, uh, read, um, but no, I just finished a book called um, all that's good subtitled rediscovering the lost art of discernment. It's by mm. a writer named Hannah Anderson. And her book was just so lovely. And um, in that way that sometimes you're, <laughs> I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this because this was my experience of just sort of the feeling that I got while I was reading the book. Like in that way that your spirit sometimes just needs a really cold drink of water, like very refreshing and just really like, it's just, a, it, it's a nice sense of things. Um, it is not, and this is what I really appreciated about it. It is not some like formulaic these are the five talking points about how to develop discernment um but one of my favorite things about the book is most of the time when we talk about discernment it's spoken of in sorts of um cautionary frameworks like mm -hmm. um oh use some discernment don't don't check that out or you have to have discernment and don't you know don't go where it's dangerous and you know don't don't do all of this that and the other but what I love so much about Hannah Anderson's book is that from the very first chapter, she reframes it and says, no, discernment is the art of developing a palette for what is good. 
and for developing hmm. a taste for what is good. That's the art of discernment. Um, and then she proceeds in her guidance and instruction and observations to then unpack these are the ways that you cultivate goodness in your life and, and continue to bring goodness into your life. And again, it was just such a refreshing reading experience. It actually, this was my first thing that I've read by her, but I enjoyed the book so much. I've put uh, two other books that she's written uh, on my radar to eventually check out. And um, and I think it's it's a really, really wonderful book, and it's very refreshing, and I think would be very valuable to give you some pointers on exactly how to navigate your life and just learn to cultivate a bit more goodness in it. So it's just called All That's Good, Rediscovering the Lost Art of Discernment by Hannah Anderson, and it's a book I highly recommend. I love it. Hmm. All right. Um, I... I'm going slower than I'd like on this task, but I've been trying to watch not just the current Golden Globe nomination films, but also what I anticipate will end up being the Oscar films. Hmm. Um, And just recently, my wife and I watched uh, from that list, uh, The Trial of the Chicago 7. Have you seen that yet? I have not. That's the Aaron Sorkin. I know he wrote it. It Did he direct it as well? He He did. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Um, I thought it was okay. Uh, mm. th- now what, and I think I've expressed this on the show before. It's always hard when you know, it's already in contention. Like your expectations are really screwed with right, right, at right, that right, point. Right. So I may not have a super fair read on that film, but I thought, yeah, I, I thought it was okay. Um, now, interestingly, the events of the film take place pretty concurrent not pretty though though the narratives don't completely bleed over each other the film judas and the black messiah interesting historically takes place at the exact same time that's interesting um, because the climax of judas and the black messiah which i won't spoil if you haven't seen it haven't yet is a real event that gets referenced as having just happened in, in Chicago Seven, Trial of Chicago Seven. Wow, um, maybe a double feature. And watch, sh- watch Black Messiah second, then because it's oh, a much better film. Got it. Yeah, got it. <laughs> and got it. and that's where I was building to. It's like having those speaking to each other the way they are as historical attempts. And I like Sorkin. I love West Wing. Um, I like Sorkin, generally speaking. Um, I like the performers in this. It was one of the first few times I felt like, man, you're trying. Mm, okay. You know, and, yeah, and, and, and that's fine. And again, bias is happening because I know it's in the conversation. And so sure. you know, yeah, an extra course. level of scrutiny is being applied by me uh, subconsciously or otherwise. Um, but yeah, I would say it's fine. Um I would still say Judas and the Black Messiah for given its place historically in terms of the actual time frame it assesses is a far better film and far more interesting and engaging. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I, it, I don't, I'm not like down on Chicago seven. Sure. I just sure. I was like, okay, well, just not I've quite seen, down check, with it either. You know, check like, the box. Yeah. yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. Um, but that has been another installment of, what you watching? <laughs> what you reading? Bring it home. What? 
are you listening to? <laughs> oh, man. That was amazing. <clears throat> so, Reed, we are we're kicking the door down. We're digging it up. <laughs> no. We're revving the bike. Oh, my we're, gosh. We're, you know, going back for the feed or the seed or the feed and the seed, whatever one, it is. One of those things. Yes. One of those the things. Feed. We're starting. Yes. We're starting. What scares us, and we're getting to you. Like you're you're under the microscope today. It's my, bro- it's my brother, my brother, intimidation. And friend. I, I just, but we are going to be because people are submitting these stories, right, of their experience of the thing that scared them. Sure, and some some narrative around that. And so um, next week we've got a special uh, treat as far as that goes. Uh, but for today's story, I wanted to. I wanted to share one of a film we have covered. So so it's not a film we would engage during the actual series, but it's right. I want to I want to share these stories. And this is a good opportunity here at the front to kick us off to get you ready for you. Oh, uh, boy. So so um, friend of the fog uh, and artist extraordinaire Jacob Hunt uh, sent us his what scares you. And it's about the film, the ring, which we did cover that, uh, sir, Stephen Beckley, who just got knighted on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Yes. Um, uh, could tell us what episode that was. However, what I'm going to do is share Jacob's story. Cause it, it's a great one. And when awesome. we started pitching this, it's the kind of thing I was like, this is the kind of stuff I want back. So, uh, Jacob shares in his, what scares us watching the ring was my scariest film going experience. He put scariest in quotes, though. it had a few of the standard jump scares. What really got to me was the oppressive feeling of dread that hung over the entire film. The tension was so tense that at some point I realized I was actually for the first time that I can recall on the edge of my seat. I looked over at my friend, Brendan, and he too was on the edge of his seat weeks later. I received a chilling phone call asking in a shaky voice who was at our apartment and whether we were in for the night. Well, Brendan and I are here, I responded. I thought I knew who was on the phone, but had to ask to be certain it was my other roommate, Blake. Turns out he had just finished watching The Ring with his girlfriend oh my gosh. and was so terrified that he didn't want to come home if no one else was there. <laughs> I assured him we'd be around, hung up, and then shared the odd experience with Brendan expressing my determination to exploit Blake's vulnerability. Inspiration came quickly and I grabbed a recordable VHS tape, blacked out its label and slipped it under Blake's pillow. (laughs) The next day with zero appreciation expressed in his tone, he described how finally having worked up the courage to return home, he crawled into bed in the darkness, felt the cold rectangle of plastic under his pillow, held it up in the dim light chopped through by window blinds. And with a shriek, Toss the blackened VHS tape across the bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that is Jacob's story oh, of the ring and his is... tension at watching it and his scaring his roommate. That was amazing. That is amazing. Thank you, Jacob, for submitting your What Scares Us. And I think this is just such a great entry point into this series, which you know, when you and I were crafting this, you know, 
we never totally know how these things are going to go when we need no, audience response. No, and right, so right. there was a little bit of trepidation on our part. Like, I, I really hope people respond. <laughs> um, let's maybe we should have Reed kick us off so we can pad it a little <laughs> if we need it to. <laughs> but here we are. And I just love that we're going to have some of these stories that we're going to be able to share in tandem with the actual films we're covering. Yeah, and so it's exciting. Um, we did choose to lead off with you, my friend. So the- here we are talking about stan winston's pumpkin head so and, why don't you set us up a little bit for this yeah and there definitely could be like as i was rattling through the you know my memories of like what would i you know what would i want to bring up that was uh something that uh scared me or freaked me out when i was younger and want to sort of pivot onto this series but honest to god the the very first thing that came to mind and the most prominent thing to that came to mind as i thought through if i were going to do this what would I do? It was always Pumpkinhead. That was always the very first thing that I wanted. And and I can share a bit of a story. I can't remember at what age I saw this film. And you had never seen it before I asked you to, right? Nope. Okay. And so I don't remember. I would have at least been probably 10 or 11 years old, somewhere in that regard. Um, but the distinct memory that I have is of acquiring this at a video store, which is why I'm not quite certain what the circumstances were, because I would have had to acquire it at a video store when I was like, I might have been as old as maybe like 12 or something like that. But I know I was not fully a teenager yet. And I got it somehow at a video store, but I don't know that my parents would have like totally let me rent right pumpkin head, you know, but yeah, like, it's the great pumpkin head. Mom. <laughs> right. Sure. Um, but I did, you know, my first job when I was in uh, like older high school was at a video store, but I don't sure. think, I don't think this was when I watched this. I think I was much younger because the distinct memory that I have is of being in my bedroom and specifically and and I wrote the scene down. It could come up later in scares, but specifically the moment when it's in the moonlit night and the it's on the road and that image far down the road of Pumpkinhead kind of ambling towards the the at that point three of the teens who have kind of survived and the other guy who's refusing to let them use his truck. And do you remember this moment? What, at what point? Uh, what, you know, kind of late. I, I, it's um, uh, it, it's probably before the last third of the. Them use their truck. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so yeah. they want to take his truck and when drive Ed away. shows up. Yes, yes, yeah. it's right before Ed shows up to take. But that image before Ed yeah. engages him and starts shooting at him, where Pumpkinhead is ambling down the road to him, just that image of the creature in its sort of full glory just freaked the crap out of me um and i remember thinking i didn't necessarily like specifically have nightmares about it but Pumpkinhead was always in the films that i had watched since then there's more iconic sort of monsters uh around that are just like you know jason and and Leatherface and Freddy and all these guys, but there has always been a special place in my heart, specifically for the creature design and execution of Pumpkinhead, because uh, I guess from when I saw him, from when I was so young, but there was also, and and, and I don't want to dive too deep on this because this is the kind of thing that will come up when we get into the more substantive thematic things, but it was the story itself as well, the notion of this man who has been done terribly wrong Mm-hmm. And then 
the means by which he tries to reconcile his grief with some form of control and action being, you know, unleashing this literal demon into into the world. And uh, and that really unsettled me in a lot of ways that still inform some of my thought processes around my skepticism about the myth of redemptive violence or, you know, my, my notions about the imperative of forgiveness and all of these kinds of things. It is I, perhaps ironically, a lot of it, the, the closest and easiest metaphor I can go to is. Well, see, there's a story called Pumpkinhead, and <laughs> you know, and and some of what's baked into it. Um, so that was why it was always at the top of my list if I knew I was going to be engaging with you know this series specifically and saying this is my entry. I knew it was going to be Pumpkinhead because I've been dying to talk about it on the show, and there's just never been a great intersection until now to uh, to really input it into our series. So. I have some, you know, I have trivial bits and I have, you know, all, all the nines on it, but I want to know your thoughts on it because this was your first time seeing it. And, and, and I think went in with like no prep beforehand. I don't know what you knew about the show no. or didn't, but. And then I saw Lance Henriksen's sweaty toned physique <laughs> at the top. I was like, damn, Lance. <laughs> <laughs> that's not how you Henrik, looked in millennium son. yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow um uh no i i really didn't know anything about it other than your affinity for it and no i i found it very <laughs> it's it's so funny knowing the reason we're talking about this is this existential splinter in your psyche from being 11 because <laughs> what i was about to say is no it's pretty delightful actually <laughs> like, oh, it's pretty well, demented to say no but, i, I kind of get it though like i watch it for pure enjoyment now uh but uh but yeah no keep going i didn't mean to well it almost had this i don't know if uh, maybe i'm overlaying too much on it but there was almost now it's set um it, effectively in the real world sort of but the score because i didn't know what i was getting so 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 my attitude is being shaped literally as i'm taking it in and so what i didn't know was that it would have this kind of think like labyrinth never-ending story uh willow kind of energy to the like score specifically yeah of course has some of that energy about it and so that helped kind of feed that word of delightful so in other words it's not just this pure like nightmare on elm street's serial killer-esque tale it, it really right, doesn't right. to me quite fit that mold even though it fits a lot of the trappings like there is a sure. uh, sort of final girl aspect to it there's um you know methodical kills by a malevolent entity so right, right. but you know him trying to inter- interrupt the circuit that he's set in motion adds that fantastical kind of mythic absolutely aspect to it so what hmm? no i was just gonna say that's one of my that's one of my favorite aspects of the film i have it i have got to i i I recently read the book we need to talk i gotta stop interrupting and making this conversation all about me (laughs) but but there's a lot of as i kind of you're in good company with interruptions (laughs) as, as i kind of prepped with vast of night this is a film about which I would acknowledge and recognize its flaws. I don't think it's a perfect film. But in my heart, 
sits with incredible affection. I love this. It's one of my favorite horror films. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. I sure. mean, you. I want you to get to the trivial bits you want to get to, but also want to just follow where the spirit and the pumpkin lead. <laughs> you know, the way you just said that, it's not a perfect film, but I accept its flaws, essentially, something like that. I, I think that we we can sometimes do ourselves a disservice. So mm. I just referenced trial of the Chicago seven. Oh, sure, sure. Sure. That's a movie operating at the peak of the careers of the people involved. In sure, other words, sure. Of that film, you could say it's not perfect, but I forgive its flaws. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to juxtapose here is, yeah, a no film is perfect. So we set that aside, but I wouldn't call necessarily what is transpiring in Pumpkinhead production-wise flaws. I would call them sure. innovation in the face of a thin budget. Mm, and mm. on top of that, not just innovation, but excellence. Well, and let me... So it's it's last thought there, because sure, sure. I want you to go that. It is dated, so sure, you know, you're, you're naturally going to have limitations based on watching this 35 years later sure right 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 so those and those limitations are inherent to just age but i would not call this you know because because you use the word it's flaws i don't think there really is much to point to here Mm. are the flaws of Pumpkinhead. it's an it's a pretty airtight story and narrative and script absolutely agree with that Um, yeah you know, I don't love just how dilapidated some of the poor people stuff is just because it's so like, okay, you really had zero dollars, didn't you? <laughs> um, this all went to this costume, which is great and effective sure, and sure. worth it. But please do say what you were going to say with some no, energy there. I, what I would acknowledge, like I could come and it would not be difficult. Like, for instance, if if we were entering this conversation and I was like, oh, my God, I love this movie. And then the person I was talking to was like, oh, my God, I love it, too. Then we would just have like a two hour <laughs> conversation about like just how much how much unbridled affection we have for the movie. If I was if I was talking to somebody and trying to put a bit more of an objective hat on, I'd be like, OK, some of the dialogue is a bit. Uh, too direct, you know, like some, some of the, because, and this is one of the fascinating, like from a script perspective, it's one of those fascinating things where I feel like the story, as you put it, and total, I totally agree, is airtight. Like the story, the narrative is near perfect, but the dialogue in the midst of that narrative, I think probably could have a little bit more flavor of, of some more nuanced you characterization mean, and stuff. God bless mama, Diddy, and my farm. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, like that. Um, well, but but here's the thing. Look, look, this thought just came to me. Juxtapose this with all love to its fans, but Phantasm. That's a movie I would mm-hmm. say it could easily be said it's not a perfect film, but I forgive its flaws. Now, that's not necessarily my opinion, but but right. In other right, words, right, right. I don't love Phantasm the way some people would, but a, a defender of Phantasm could say, you know what? It's hokey. It it feels a little un realized in some places sure but yeah, right. i can i can overlook those quote-unquote flaws and find something i really enjoy i don't think that can as readily be applied to this i do think there what is in Pumpkinhead is meant to be there and yes what is there is meant to tell you a thing yeah versus some of what's in phantasm are like i don't know if you meant for that to be in there. <laughs> right right so what i love does that, about, make, does that comparison make oh sense? it absolutely does and what i love so much about this is that i was prepared 
in my in my heart and mind to have to prop up my affection on, for Reed. this film. Knowing no, and, and what what is beautiful about the moment that's happening is here I am uh, like, oh, my God, this is one of my favorite horror movies. And you've now talked me into it. It's like, OK, well, I'm not going to qualify it anymore. <laughs> I love yeah. I love this movie. I love everything about it. I do think that the um, the and this is the part of what was in the what scares me thing. This creature design is perfect. It's like it's epic. The the creature design is amazing. Like to get speak, into the details is amazing. Speak real quick. Don't attempt to control yourself. But <laughs> so I um I you know, I'm familiar by by virtue of the legend of the name of Stan Winston and so yeah. I knew going in I was like okay, if nothing else and I had no idea what I was getting into. If nothing else, I'm going to appreciate the visual aspect of this creature. Sure. Um, and it's got some interesting echoes of like the Xenomorph, which would have predated it does. by about four or five years. Um, that his shop worked on for at least aliens. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do. So here's my experience of watching Pumpkinhead when they torch the body at the end or the previous previous to the end. I thought, oh, huh? I, I why do I not? I, I didn't know if there were if it was a series. I didn't know if it was a series. I didn't oh, know if there okay, were more sure. films. Yeah. Um. Do you have a liking for it as a series, or does your affection primarily just rest with this first one? It it kind of it it drops off a sheer cliff after the first one because I have I did s- see Henriksen shows up in later. He, d- he does, yeah. And and I have I have to confess that I have seen the second one it was years ago and i don't have a strong memory for it i had a notion when part three came out because part three was direct to tv and i think might have even been like direct to sci-fi channel and i had the notion that maybe i would watch it but i got one like sort of trailer glimpse of the pumpkin head character and it's like Mm -hmm. full bore cg kind of thing oh wow so so when i saw that it kind of turned me off a little bit so Maybe there's some, and and I would certainly love, I would certainly welcome this if there are, if there are listeners out there who have some affection for the following sequels, then definitely I'm I'm pitchable and, and could be convinced to watch them. But I just have to be honest that I have not watched three and four, and I didn't have a strong affection for two. So my affection for, as opposed to, in preparation for this episode, I watched this one twice. <laughs> like, oh really? Yeah. Well, I just I love it I, so much. I'm risking just steering us right into the patch the pumpkin patch here but what made me affectionate towards the film one is the originality mm-hmm. now correct me if i'm wrong is it based on any pre-existing something no, or other it's an original it's it, right it's, it was inspired by a poem by a man named of ed justin i think and um and it was inspired it was literally just a spark of they had this poem, and I forget exactly the context in which this poem was introduced to one of the producers, and they were like, hey, uh, they, they literally, like a writer for hire, hey, we've optioned the rights to this. Can you make a script out of this little poem here? And it's the poem that the kids say, you know, in the when they're circling around the kid, mm. they're trying to freak out. Yeah. So, yeah. I guess... I, I want to I want to walk through production and pedantics if we want to, but it's the end. It's the end that kind of sealed the deal for me of like, okay, this is kind of special. Um, yes. Yeah, I agree. And by that, I mean the literal the literal end. And so, if you haven't watched it, one 
it's it's an hour and a half. Glory be. <laughs> <laughs> it's 80, it's Do it again. Minutes. No wonder you watch yeah. it twice. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> show me good. another one. Yeah, it's great. Um, uh, so not only is it a breezy hour and a half, but um, it's not overly schlocky. It's got some earmarks of of kind of the serial killer motif again because it's multiple people die in semi-brutal fashion but even then it's it's a little fantastical but as you outlined the premise is man suffers grievous misfortune in this case the the death of his son in a dreadful motorbike accident uh by others uh and yeah enter the fantasy element he goes ostensibly and just finds the witch just randomly out in the woods um who <laughs> uh, uh instructs him on how um he can exact his revenge by getting this pumpkin head character so he has to go out to this pumpkin patch he digs up this embryonic cadaver thing yeah yeah and comes back with it to the witch. She performs this incantation, uh, uh, utilizing blood from him and the, the past child and, and summons forth the pumpkin head. Now who then proceeds to wreak havoc against this troop of teenagers, uh, who harmed this man. Now the, the, the specialness of the film becomes, you realize the character Ed played by Lance Erickson has this kind of psychic link, to the pumpkin head, which is not told to him as part of his deal here. Right. And so as part of it, he ends up as I referenced, trying to short circuit the cycle. Once he realizes this and kind of experiences compunction for his action. Well, it, it ends and I'm just building to explaining the end so I can illustrate how special it kind of steps into is he, asks ultimately and realizing what's at stake he gets one of the remaining surviving teenagers to kill him to to shoot him yes yeah well the film ends with yes these kids surviving or whatever and the the body of pumpkin head uh you know torched burning right but the but the literal film ends the final scene is the witch out in the pumpkin patch Mm-hmm. Bur- burying the now misshapen towards pumpkin head esque body of Ed. Yeah. And it's him. And, right. And yeah. that I was like, Oh snap. That's good. Yes. Yeah. And it is, it's like, that's what the film has. And in the, um, in like the, the special features of the Blu-ray edition that shout factory has a really great Blu-ray collector's edition of this uh, piece with some really great special features in it. And in those special features, they echo it almost too much to where they're kind of like beating the horse a bit um, about the moral center at this this narrative's heart, you know, that, that it really is very much this sort of meditation on the price and the cost and the cyclical nature of vengeance and how it just sort of plants seeds that are going to continue to uh, destroy your life and destroy the lives of countless others because it's worth noting that he knows to go and seek this woman, this old witch, out because as a child he saw the creature right. through the window right. take out somebody else. And so he's, you know, this mythos has kind of reverberated in his psyche for all these years. And um, I think it's, 
I think it's pretty profound when you begin to kind of dig into it and, and definitely ahead of its time. One of the things, and this maybe can edge up to just the couple of little trivial bits I was going to mention, it was it was um, double featured, Pumpkinhead was, was double featured up against Child's Play. And Child's Play was one of like the big tent poles of studio marketing. So it got like all the press at the time. So it was relatively underseen in the theater, but it became a big hit on video when a lot of people were you know, just checking it out as, as many films did at that point. Um, one of the things that I think is really remarkable about the production, and then I'll pivot this into, you know, you used the word earlier special, that this film is kind of special. Um, it w- It is said by literally every interview I can find that this was one of the most bright, lighthearted, and could not have counted the times the word fun was used I saw of, that. of a set yeah. um, that just everybody had fun. Stan Winston, legend in the makeup effects world, had a reputation for wanting to keep his sets fun. He wanted his team to work hard, but he was very passionate about go home to your family and I'll pay you overtime when you can't go home to your family because I need you rested. And when you when you're here, I want you to be here and I want you to right. enjoy being here because your work will improve if you enjoy being here. And they said that's the energy that he brought to the set and that his just care for the actors and just the way he navigated. I, I guess there was one particularly tense moment where they couldn't get a part of the mechanics of the creature to work and they were stressing out a little bit because they were running a little late, a little ground on time. And one of the effects guys was sitting there trying to work the, the mechanism on it. And when they looked over, they looked over at Stan in the corner watching them. And when they saw Stan, they said he had tilted his glasses on his head and was making a funny face. And they said, that's that's the director telling me to lighten up, not, oh, my right, gosh, hurry this right. up. We got to. And it just the whole thing just endeared me all the more to Stan Winston, who who passed away, I think, in uh, the late 2000s. And um, it just everything about it just endeared me to him all the more for hearing those kinds of stories. But getting back to the specialty of the narrative, like this is a this is a film that has a tremendous amount of moral gravity on its mind and uh, in ways that I think you could almost edge up a little bit into pretension trying to kind of wrangle it all down when I also think if you weren't interested in all the moral gravity that it has to offer, it's also a really effective scary thriller. But um, but but yeah, it does. It has it has a tremendous amount of substance at its root in in the subject of vengeance. If you'll permit, maybe as a touch point on more lighthearted elements before we fully, you know, go. I mean, I want to go wherever you want to, but yeah, 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 sure, um, sure. As maybe a summary and representative question that. Uh, gets us at the frothier parts of the film before we before we get into the more meat of the bones, uh, meat on the bones. What Reed? What's your favorite kill in this film? Oh! <laughs> Man, that's a tough one. Do you that's have to? If, do you want to think? I, I want to think I for a mind. second. If you okay. got one, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to think do. for a second. Uh, because it's and like it's funny. I think about like a film like Freaky. Which there are several in, uh, inventive or kind of creative kills there, but none I would be like, okay, that's impressive. Mm. Unlike this, which is uh, Muppet Maggie at the <laughs> at the window. Oh, 
when the creature is playing puppet doll yes paper doll with her head and then smashes it into the glass oh. that was rough yeah <laughs> yes <indeed. laughs> I was like that poor girl oh my gosh and uh and i think mine because it was between y- you've just solved it for me because i was going back and forth between do i mention that one or do i mention the other one so i'll i'll, I'll cite as my favorite kill is joel's exit after he had so arrogantly <laughs> busted up there and, and he was like you don't and they're like you don't know that it's dead you don't know and he, and he blasts it into the head and he's like it's dead and suddenly the thing like gets up but there's that image we we, we cannot praise mm-hmm. the creature design enough there's that image that great shot where Pumpkinhead has the rifle but he kind of like tilts it this direction and he's he's turning his mm-hmm. head kind of sideways mm-hmm. and it's just oh it's so creepy and then he plunges the rifle through joel's middle and like shish kebabs him up yeah. in the air and then afterwards where he's like playing with the limp head where he's just like yeah like, the head keeps that was falling an back odd. and oh yeah man. that was creepy yeah it's just a yeah th- this this beast this this pumpkin head demon is gnarly like he looks terrifying and he is absolutely brutal one thing that's kind of interesting i had written this down maybe to, to touch on in some more substantive points so i'll just hit and run it for the moment what's interesting is the the one moment that kind of gave a lot of the cast and crew some pause is when Pumpkinhead carves the cross into mm. Maggie's mm-hmm. face. And there were some concerns, and in the special features I watched, they didn't dive too much beyond saying there were some concerns. But there were some concerns, I guess, of a sacrilege in some of the portrayals of like what Pumpkinhead does. And I do want to... I do want to kind of, or, or possibly, if it goes there, want to kind of explore that a little bit. But I thought that was really interesting, particularly you mentioned Maggie's death. And she is one of the few characters in the film that is directly referenced as a person of faith. She has that cross. Mm, right. Steve, you know, points out, he's like, you've always found your hope in this, you know. And, uh, and so there's definitely, like, some religious thought on the film's mind. But it, it manifests itself in some fascinating Well, and even the it. showdown in the abandoned church. You know? Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I don't know. For me personally, and this is, I, I didn't do any external sourcing like you did with the Blu-ray and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. this is purely just, sometimes when I see stuff like that, especially in older material, it, I give it a little bit of a, a long rope. Cause I'm like, ah, I don't know if you guys really know what you're talking about, but you're getting oh, lip sure. service to it. So I'm fine. You know, yeah, like right, I, I just right, right, don't, right. Don't think overly hard about it other than just, huh? That's interesting. Let's- yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh-huh. Um, so I do want to, I do want to reference just, uh, before we get too deep into some sub substantive things. Um, one really big love, although it's like heartbreaking and then a really big fear. Um, uh, the the relationship between Ed and his son, I think, is handled very well in the film because it's it's pretty believable. It's kind of it's kind of heartbreaking the the notion that these two are really all each other has because for reasons that the film doesn't unpack for us, Ed lost his wife sometime before this. Uh, we don't know when. Right. We just know, you know, based on that scene towards the end. Because when you first see them. You just know it's a father and son, but mom's not in the picture. We don't really know why. And it's not until later in the film that he visits her grave and, you know, tells her they, they killed him, honey. You know, like, and uh, and so they've been through such tremendous tragedy. But, God, it chokes me up every single time 
that he's cleaning his son like right after after the bike accident and he's mm-hmm. like trying to wash his face and he's trying to tell him that story that uh, that apparently yeah. they repeat often where the man has a very special son and it's just yes. that that rips my heart out every time. Well, and this is why I would say this is better than people would assume based on its age, based on some of the imagery if you haven't seen it, but like you you just reference this. It's not just there are a lot of component pieces in that first half hour mm-hmm. that signal thoughtfulness. And yeah. one is, and I joked a little bit in truth, I, I hadn't really seen Lance Henriksen in much besides alien, right? He's in or, aliens. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Aliens. And you know, I didn't watch it really, but I know he's in millennium cause it crossed over with X files. Sure. Right. 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 Uh, shout out Ned. Um, <laughs> So I haven't seen him in much, but I know who he is and, and he's, he's very good in this role Yeah, and they don't play it for, they don't play it for melodrama, which is impressive. Right. Right. They play it really straight. Um, but it has, it, it has all the makings of saccharine and dumb. In other words, yeah. It's like the cutest kid in the world. It's Jonathan Lipnicki circa Jerry Maguire. It's like, <laughs> right, really? Right. You got this kid and you got that handsome dad and they're like just just palling around out on the, <laughs> you know, the plains of wherever they're at and they run their little grocery store. And yeah, um, but things like the scene you just referenced, I don't it's not just that dialogue, which is fantastic or monologue, as it were. It's how that scene is realized visually. I mean, it is a yeah. beautiful moment That's where true. very well, you know, lit. yeah, yes. The, the lighting from the back, um, that is one just pure production thing. I'll credit on the film besides the creature design is, is the lighting, you know, the, the first romp of pumpkin head through the wilds of the first five minutes, it's dark and purple and blue outside. It's Ooh, red yes. and sharp inside. Um, so no, there's a lot of thoughtfulness, at work here and so so the production notes were yes echoing what you're saying about that scene but also actually it's funny i was thinking about this after the movie like how would what frustrates me sometimes about um when you really like something and think Mm -hmm. something is done well but then it's hard for you to figure out how you would articulate why you think it's done well. Right. You know, does that right. ever happen oh, to you? Absolutely. All the time. So, Every episode of the fear of God. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know, but I love it. But I don't I know it. why, but they do it right. Yes. Well, this is one of those moments. The scene of at the grocery store, when the different parties start showing up and yeah. like, why, why that scene is really strong. I had not seen the film before. I hadn't watched a trailer. Sure. I sure. didn't really know the narrative arc. Yeah. But you know, something bad is going to happen. It's about to happen. Right, right, right. But the way they draw that out, this, you know, even the teenagers split into two parties. So mm-hmm. one party yeah. shows up, the second half of their party show up, the 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 poor family with the, their dozen kids show up. All these, for what is a quiet film up until that point, besides the teaser, all these people are suddenly populating the scene. Yes. And you're like, man, this is, 
they are taking their time with this and mm-hmm. it is nail biting because I don't know what's going to happen, but I know it's something bad. bad. Yeah. Yeah. Something bad. Um, so I, I don't know. Just real credit to, to whatever the thing is they do there. <laughs> and, and I'll also say like, so two more little bits. First of all, in those little kids, the sort of the, the poor kids uh-huh. that are running around. Did you notice little baby blossom in there? My, uh, I, I didn't, it's funny. Subconsciously I did. And then I saw her name sure. later yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think this was her first film. Um, also that dog gypsy is, uh, the same dog, uh, in gremlins, which I thought was fun. Mm. Um, but <laughs> what, a <laughs> but, um, what specifically is really kind of interesting about the way Stan Winston approached this. And again, I, this, this may be the last time on the episode that I really like sing his praises to this degree, but he could have been a real control freak about everything, but he was very invested in wanting to make sure that his job as director was on point. So for like effects team and everything, he said he went to his effects team for Pumpkinhead and said, I'm the client. I'm the director. You guys come to me with the effects design. He said, I'm not going to, he said, I'll tell you what I want, but you treat me like the client. I'm not the boss now. I'm the client. And then you, you show me what you've got and really gave his effects team an opportunity to shine. The reason I'm bringing that up is because I think that decision on his part left him free to make a lot more of those little like narrative tweaks, specifically the, the, the substance of where the narrative goes is actually a bit darker than it was in the original script. And that's a lot of just mm. sort of his vision kind of pushing it forward a little bit. I didn't mention this earlier. I said I had two things. The I mentioned the sun thing. The second thing is almost as frightening as the pumpkin head demon itself is freaking haggis, the old witch. Lady. Oh man. Like, those, those shots of her, like looking into the fireplace, that deep crimson red. Oh, you my. can go now, Ed Harley. Oh my gosh. Now it's so it great. God, it's so great. And then like, and then she's sitting there talking to him and, and the stillness, uh, what is, what is that actor's name? Oh my gosh. The, um, her name is Florence Schaeffler. And she's so, she's just like a statue standing there. But like her lines produce so much power and there's a huge makeup effect on her. That makeup, I guess, weighed like 65 pounds. I mean, it was just a lot. And, but she's just producing so much energy just in her stillness. And I love this could have easily edged into like campiness, but when he's in there after Pumpkinhead has killed a couple of people mm-hmm. and he comes back in and he's like, not like this, not like this. And he's like going so manic, but she's still just very still. And she's still just like really controlled. And, and she's just telling him like, look, you started this. This has got to, what you want it, Harley. Oh, my God. Oh my God! It's right, so great. the first time she entered the scene. My my scares note was just creepy old lady in her creepy old cabin with her creepy dancing owl and her creepy spiders and her creepy wispy hair. It <laughs> <laughs> is everything about it creepy. Um, yeah, but but and then like that you know and I, uh, sensitivity for some of our listeners who wouldn't want me to quote this, but like um, you know he there there's even a line like this that might be viewed as kind of cheesy. But when he tells her, he says, you know, GDU, and then, you know, she says back to him, she says, he already has. But she says it with like a glee in her voice. It's really, really unnerving. And she's like, he already has. He already has. And it's just like, there's a lot from the moment he carries 
And I think maybe that's one of the things that really connects to me is because I'm like, man, what would you do? <laughs> what would you do in this situation? These kids, these, if you want to use this vernacular, these punk kids have taken the last good thing you had in this world and you have a path to unleash literal hell on them. And with abandon to the cost it's going to pay to your own soul. And I think there's something really compelling about that notion. Uh, and, and from the moment he carries the body of his son in there, Lance Henriksen had said, you probably saw this if you did the, some trivia digging, but he said it more than once in the little special features I watched. He said that at first he heard the title and he was like, Pumpkinhead, what, the, what is this dumb thing? But his agent had sent it to him. And so he's sitting there, he's watch, he's reading the script, but he said the moment that the son sits up in the car mm-hmm. and looks at him and says, what'd you do, daddy? What'd you do? Mm-hmm. And he said when he was reading it, just chills uh, hit the back of his neck and he knew he had to be a part of this project because that does speak a little bit to the the thoughtfulness and what this this film has on its mind right. um, that I think is, is just terribly, terribly impressive. Well, if you'll permit Please. Um, a, a sort of you know where you just left that feels like it it invites something that was on my mind to to throw out for you for both of us here is yeah sure sure is like what (laughs) what would it have taken to save ed Mm. and god have mercy because i think what's so you you alluded this few minutes ago about the darkness by the end of it like when you really start to unwind what's happening in that final scene, it's, it's, it's not dreadful because it's a creepy old witch burying a weird looking thing in a weird pumpkin patch. Like that's text. Like what is the subtext here? The subtext is you have just locked yourself into some, generational wickedness that is now inescapable Mm -hmm. because of this one terrible thing. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to flirt too nihilistic, but it's like, damn, by he tries. Yeah, he does. He tries. He does. And, 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 and at the very least succeeds in sort of salvaging those kids who Saves remain two of the lives, but right. Three of them, but I in guess, terms of what, both. but in terms of what he has unwittingly locked himself into, I mean, like what, uh, anyway, so that, that, a, that was something that just came to me. It was like, what, what saves this guy? So, so at that least was in the world of the film. I, I want to, I won't have a good answer to that, but I want to wrestle with it a little there bit. There is one. Yeah. Um, one of the images that stays in my mind so profoundly when I think about this movie is the image, obviously, when they go back to that like barn or whatever, where the climax of the film takes place. And he opens his eyes and it's those bloodshot, you know, really that's a, possessed yeah, that's a great kind of eyes. Moment. But the moment when he's walking out and he has that flamethrower, because that's what he says to her. He says, I don't know. I don't know how to kill it. Or like, or he says, I don't know how to stop it. Gosh, I should have written the line down, and I've seen it like a dozen times. But the part of the line that stands out to me, he says, I'm going to send it back to whatever hell it came from. And 
when he realizes as he's stepping out and the pitchfork catches his yeah, shoulder. Yeah, yeah. And when the pitchfork catches his shoulder and then the pumpkin head monster reacts in pain, mm-hmm. it dawns and it's, God, it's such a chilling image because he's got those bloodshot eyes, those, those possessed kind of eyes, and it dawns on him in his haunted visage, it dawns on him, this is how I stop this, is I, I stop me. Right, I, right. I, I, I end me to stop this. And uh, that, is, that is such a horrific and terrifying sort of uh, revelation for us to ponder. Um, because one of, the things that, one of the things that I was going to wrestle with, and it's adjacent to this whole, what would it take to save Ed? Because I was going to ask perhaps an, op- an even loftier question of, what does justice look like in this situation? Like, what is what does what is good look like? Because sure, he can hold these kids to account for the loss of his son, but he still lost his son. You know, like the yeah. the, the void well, that would exist in his world. My knee jerk reaction, which is pithy and and you know maybe overused at this point, but the weight of which could never be overstated. You ask, what does justice look like, or or you know, what does peace look like? And damn it, it's include and forgive. And oh my God, like that's the holy work. Meaning here's the moment, Reed, the moment when Ed becomes unsalvageable in the universe of this film is when he's cradling him in that pastoral moment on the bed and that final murderous look that comes to him. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's it. Right. Yeah. That's. And because again, the text of the old woman burying him at the end is just a thing. The subtext is what matters. The text of this, this grief stricken man, uh, uh, adopting a, a murderous look that we would all empathize with. Mm-hmm. What is he? What's. And, and, there's some specificity to this that can be blown up to, to address the question you're scratching at, which is what, what's happening to him right there is heinous wickedness that he has observed in his own life with his own eyes. He knows he can attempt to utilize to his own. He can aim it. Yes. Mm -hmm. But all I'm trying to point out is, and this is where we elevate into the us of it all and the listenership of it all and the real world of it all is when we adopt the methods of wickedness, Mm. what we're doing is short circuiting our own health and maturity and growth and wisdom and enlightenment and, and Christ like ness waiting to be birthed. We short circuit that by saying, you know what? I know I saw this thing that time. Yeah. And it'll it'll F them up just like I saw it F that other those other people up. So I I'm gonna do it. You know what I mean? Like when yes, you switch yeah. when you flip that switch. And and what you're what you're scratching at right now, this is this is gonna sound random, but I'm gonna I'm gonna break it back through. Do you remember it might have even been in, in our old Professor Keith's class where he talked about the I, I remember hearing somewhere where it said the climax of a story does not necessarily have to come at the uh, end of, or, you know, in the final moments sure, of sure. it, um, that, uh, the climax 
uh, for like Hamlet is actually in the middle when he's doing the to be or not to be speech because that's when mm-hmm. he makes the decision: do I end me or do I end them? Right. That's right. the that's the choice of the path that we're going on. And a comparable moment is in the middle that you're talking about is where. And it, as you're articulating it, it adds a little bit more weight than I think I even felt the first time or, you know, the multitude of times through I've seen it is where he brings his son in and she said, it ain't in my power to raise the dead. And then she goads him. Say it. Say it. Mm-hmm. What do you want? Say it. And he's tormented as he's sitting there, even slams his fist against the yeah, mantle. Yeah. He's tormented by... That notion of like, you know, she's like, what do you want? Why are you here? And then it's after she coaxes him probably two or three times of say it, say it, that he goes in exactly what you just sort of articulated. I've seen this thing and I'm going to do it. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to point this hellish vengeance at these people. And, uh, and, and, and I'll do it, whatever it is. And from that, and that's his, that's his damnation right there is that yeah. moment. And even what's so tragic about it, as energizing as it is, and it is as a, as a film viewer, it's really energizing the moment that pumpkin head, that I referenced earlier, the pumpkin head is ambling down the road and then he's shot mm-hmm. and the camera turns over and it's Ed, it's Ed yeah. trying to defend them. And uh, that's a very sort of energetic moment because that's the that's where the table kind of turns on what you think you're seeing. He's not he's not embracing it anymore. He's trying to stop it. Right. But it's too late to stop. Yeah. The, the moment you're looking at a dead man walking. Absolutely. It's only an, and she even says when he tries to say, like, not like this, not like this. And he says, then fine, I'll do it myself. And she said, and pay the price all the sooner. Pay the ultimate price all all the sooner. Mm. You know, this yeah. was always where it was headed. Right. You know, it's like that's the really haunting thing about it is that what world do we finish finish the narrative out if he doesn't intervene? What happens to the pumpkin head demon after he's fulfilled it? Does Ed just get to go back to his grocery store or something? No. It was always that he will he will become this because it it's this transformation that is happening. Regardless of his intervention, he is becoming this this thing. He's becoming this short of shriveled husk. So when she said it extracts a terrible price, like that's that's it. And the cost of our the cost of not because we can talk all we want to about the painful cost of including and forgiving. But the cost of not doing it, the cost of instead aiming vengeance and wrath. Right. At everything and embracing. I wouldn't say there's cost to including and forgiving. I said there's work to it. Yes, well, yes there's absolutely sure, cost sure. to the opposite. It's interesting. It's funny because you, what you're conjuring for me is, um, and this will be weird in the way we record these podcasts, but um, I'm reading Thomas Merton's book, Seeds of Destruction, right now. Spoiler alert for next week's watches. But um, <laughs> there's this moment in there that really just struck me profoundly. I think it was in there. It wasn't the roar. I just finished. Um, I don't read as many as you do. So they all start to run together, but, um, rib, rib, um, yeah, yeah, felt it (laughs) where he basically is articulating. What does it mean? Not so much to be Christian, but you know, like what does faithfulness mean practically? And he distills all these things down and ultimately read what he lands on is intention. Mm. Intention. He's like, you can, you can, metaphysic all this stuff you can mythologize all this stuff but at the end of the day 
the measure is intention. Yeah. And, and what, why I'm bringing that in right here is why this film is so interesting to me is it basically tells the story. What happens when you unleash hell is that you ultimately just inhabit it. You, you, you now live it. You, you, Mm. you own it because the intention was to do it. Now, we can occasionally regret our intentions and that right. is a conversation. Right, right, right. This movie isn't about trying to subvert. It's about the cautionary tale of what happens when you do intend it. But right, 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 right. I think something that I've, you know, kind of in the spirit of, um, body and spirit, uh, freaky conversation. <laughs> um, something that, uh, I've kind of come to these last years is, is like, when we talk about heaven and hell, we can talk to we're blue in the face about ethereal afterlife de- destinations. But to do that circumvents and waters down and if anything robs the concepts of heaven and hell from their truest meaning, which is you're 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 perpetuating one of those here and now. Mm, and right right you know we can mythologize a fire ridden red hell and still not understand that our intentions here can wreak it all around yeah. us no absolutely yeah, um absolutely anyway i'm so no i'm so galvanized by the like when you unleash hell you inhabit it that that is worth our pause and that is worth our recognition in this in this conversation because I, I I will hit this and maybe this will be my final observation for this conversation about the film because God knows I love this film uh, greatly and and could talk about it ad infinitum but I I do want to go back to the to the fact that in the film he carves a cross onto Maggie's face. He enters the church, and for a, for a film that is very short and tight, there's at least a few seconds where he picks up the cross, like the wooden cross inside mm-hmm, the church, mm-hmm. and is clearly very, you know, uh, irritated, agitated, antagonistic towards it, and smashes it, mm-hmm. and smashes the cross. And I think this is, this 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 second half of the film is this sort of unleashing this is a very kind of lofty statement but it's like we we either choose to go the path of what i would call the cross which is as we've expressed on the show before the only acceptable loss is our own and and bear mm. the burden mm-hmm. the burden of include and forgive for ourselves mm-hmm. and and we either go that path or we or we unleash hell, and at that point, it may be perhaps, uh, you know, like I don't ever want to talk about like, oh, it's too late or something, because I just don't, I just don't see things that way. But um, it, it's very, very difficult to disembody yourself from hell once you are inhabiting it. Once you have embraced wickedness, mm. it is dreadfully difficult to disentangle yourself from all of that 
in such a way. And, and, and I don't want to imply that you reach places beyond redemption, because I also don't really necessarily believe that. But I think in the ways in which you and I minded the way we are, would want to lean forward on redemptive possibilities, and rightfully so. I think the risk we run is in perhaps diminishing the cautionary sort of statements around how far things can go if you do not repent and turn from embracing wicked ways. Like, and, and when I say wicked ways, I'm not talking about pedantic, superficial sins. I'm talking about a deep abiding, sure. like, you know, embracing of toxic, destructive, just vast, vast amounts of violence and hatred and uh the you know you could talk about the seven deadly sins if you want to en- encompass that you know just uh the envy and the arrogance and the wrath and all of those kinds of things that just they they foster hell in the world around you and in your own spirit and at that point uh it 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 really it really becomes a place to where you as you put it earlier you become part of the cycle of how much more that is going to, you know, we've talked before on the show in positive ways um, about the way that that generations will reap what we sow mm-hmm. here and now. You know, our sons and daughters, their grandchildren, or, you know, our grandchildren, their children will reap the seeds that we choose to plant in either uh, in ways that will shade and comfort and provide fruit and goodness or a mound in Razorback Hollow that is only to be completely dredged up in these patterns of vengeance and destruction. And and what it really comes down to for me is you have to stop. Man, this is too lofty. I don't know if I could, I don't know if I could live up to this. I'm going to make the statement because I believe it to be true, but I don't know if I could live up to it. Just calling myself out in the moment. Um, you have to learn how to recognize that the loss itself can only be paid back, reconciled, made right by a path towards forgiveness and a path towards, um, you know, uh, fighting for a more productive justice Mm -hmm. as opposed to kill them all, as opposed to just like the slaughterhouse. Um, And I feel like... In so many ways, the fight that we're in right now for our own souls can so quickly become about conquering and overcoming this very sort of battle language. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, there is the very pithy old phrase about how an eye for an eye eventually leaves everyone blind. That's that's what that path leads, which is why, to bring in some very specific scriptural reference as a, as a point of, of laying it down, something you said several episodes ago still resonates in my spirit, so I'll reference the scripture and then quote Mr. Nathan Rouse, my good friend, where Jesus said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, love your enemies and, and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. And he is taking it a lot of times like the eye for an eye, and we've talked about this before, an eye for an eye is kind of viewed as like, well, yeah, that's that's justice, right? You took my eye, I'm going to take yours. But actually, in the original texts, it was meant to be a restriction. 
It was meant to be like, hey, they took your eye, so you can't you can't take their head. <laughs> you know, like it was meant mm-hmm. to be like a restrictive thing. Narrow the right the return. And, yeah. and Christ was taking it further. They took your eye. I'm telling you, love them. I'm telling you, do good to them and bless mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And something that you have said in an episode, I can't remember which one, but you said, you know, you have to love your enemies to, to the degree that now you have no enemies. Like mm-hmm. that's the, that's so much the point right. is we right. love, we love our enemies so that we have no enemies. You know, right. we give away our possessions so that nothing possesses us. You know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. we, we, we relinquish and, and, you know, we, we, we navigate and, and listen, I get it. The film is challenging in these ways because the man lost his son and he right. lost his son to a selfish SOB who just doesn't want to go back to jail. You know, right. like I get it. This is not, this is not some minor infraction. This is his sure. world right. that was shattered, you know, but that is the hard work is because you can look at the weight of the loss and it would be so easy to just be like, Oh my God, give him hell. Literally. Give them hell. Unleash demonic fury upon them. Not realizing until God help us, it is too late that the price we have chosen to pay is our own soul, you know? And so when we would point and, you know, one of the things I was going to ask is like, who does the real wrong here? Is it, is it the, the, the kids who took his son from him? Is it Ed or is it Haggis who perpetuates a path that can unleash all of these things. And I don't really want to unpack all of that right now, but I think it's worth reflecting in our own life in the way that we cling to grudges and cling to our loss. And I do, I am not saying, I'm definitively not saying you don't fight for reconciliatory justice. I am not saying that. I am not saying just, oh, suck it up and let it go. That's the farthest thing from what I'm talking about. But I am talking about it is our own soul at peril when we adopt and embrace unrestricted vengeance yes. and and say, okay, uh, I'm going to unleash hell on these people who have done me such egregious wrong. As a final note for me, I think I I think the 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 film is pretty uh, impressive as it currently exists, but something that just popped into my mind. Because the way the film ends s- sort of cements the darkness of the cycle, but it and maybe this would have been too saccharine, but something inspired by just our our conversing about it that popped in my head was what if you have the film play out the way it does? Haggis buries the 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 dread version of Ed. Yeah, yeah. That fade to black. And then you cut back to Ed weeping over his son in the bed. In other words, it's all been him envisioning oh, what, wow. Wow. Yeah. what vengeance would be and mm. what that would cost and, and instead yeah. chooses something different. That would have been, that's interesting to ponder, but I think again, it's, it's maybe too saccharine for what the movie's after, but sure. Right. I understand. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing invites, those sorts of ponderings. So no, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's All a, right, Reed. yeah, it's a, it's a film that, uh, if, if you haven't heard me say it enough, like it's a film that's really special to me and, uh, and, and I love it quite a bit. It was, it was, it's still, you know, it's implications still haunt and scare me and challenge me when I am tempted to hold grudges and hold, uh, people into, you know, profound account as it were. Um, so so that, yeah, every now want- and then when you're driving and you've got like 
murder mm. in your heart. Just imagine me sitting next to you going, why'd you do it, Lackey? <laughs> <That's>, wow. <laughs> you just sit up. What'd you do? Um, what'd you do? That's it. That's it. Yeah. So uh, you want to explain the fog meter to people? The fog meter is our very own special brew, like Haggis in the... <laughs> Haggis, haggis in the hut clowns in the cornfield everybody's everywhere in their own little special abode um uh here are uh, we we have the fog meter we measure films on metrics of fear and god how scary a thing is how substantive a thing is um i want you to go first with fear okay. because it's your what scares us and i'm curious kind of how 41 uh, you're not 41 yet. 40 year old. 40. Don't, don't age me before my time. Well, I'm you 40. know, <laughs> I like to think we're running alongside each other like that those two true. kids that from that true. book. But then I forget you're a no. year behind me and you just need to get on the carousel and catch up <laughs> or I need to get on it and go back. You know, so um, and come on, dude, I just gave you like a something wicked this way comes like deep, deep cut and you're you just right. let it no, pass I, right by. I apologize. You know what? That I can tell you read the book. <laughs> I can tell, you know. <laughs> I can tell you really, you really love it. Yeah, yeah we, something wicked this way comes. Indeed, common you are, cause, brother. Yeah, love is the common cause. Um, so for fear, it's tough because I watch this film now not for frights. Sure. Um, so it's it's difficult in that way. But I can go back to when I first saw it, and I do think the fear factor is pretty high for it. Um, I'm in in the way. If I was just rating the film's effectiveness as a as a thriller, I would probably give it a seven. My existential fears of the narrative depths that it has would probably land at a ten. So I'm gonna split the difference to do eight and a half. Okay. Um, I think the impressive nature of the creature design, very much so, would be like an auto five points. Uh, on this m- scale, honestly, it's it's Haggis burying him at the end, and I'm like, just ratchets the fear factor way up in terms of the existential nature of it and the things we, the things you and I like to think about and like to talk about. Like it, the movie could have ended without that scene. The movie could yes, have ended right, right, uh, out in the field when he's the body's yeah, burning or something. Yeah, right, and right. just oh, he did it, the tragic mm-hmm. hero. Uh, but it doesn't, and 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 what it chooses to show in her doing that just elevates. You know, I I I think I'll give it an eight on the fear. Yes. Very nice. Um, you mind if I go first for God? Just like Ed, <laughs> Ed <laughs> trying just... to break the circuit here. <laughs> Do whatever you want, Reed. It's your what scares us. It's good. It's all good. So I'm gonna be generous because I love the film a lot, and I'm just I'm. I'm going to go for 10 for this because, you know, in that way that somebody might balk at like, why are you giving Pumpkinhead a 10? I'm like, look, the film has got a lot on its mind. It's, it's clearly very, it's clearly very thoughtful and very thought provoking. And so in that spirit where I love the film and I love it for a lot of these reasons, I'm going to go ahead and go for 10 for the God meter. Well, what say you, Mr. Rouse? Uh, I'm going to go nine. I've only seen it once. I mean, I think nice. that final scene is the linchpin that not only elevates the scare factor, but kicks the door wide on like, wow, this is really trying to state something strong about sure, the nature right. of our intentions. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that means that we give... You, oh, my God. I'm so happy. This makes me so happy. We give Pumpkinhead, one of my uh, favorite horror films, we give it a 9 out of 10 on the fog meter. That is, that is pretty... That is I pretty love high. how, for this episode, you came ready to come to blows over <laughs> what... Did. How You were ready to defend. You were ready to just put on the... Tie on the mitts and yeah. take Nathan out and be like, I'm going to defend my film here, but you yeah. don't have to. I'm here. No, I just, yeah, I, cause I always, you know, the, when you, when a film is really special to you, um, you, you're, you're ready for people to like, you want to see or people to see what you find special about it. And yeah. so it just, it just makes me really happy, very validating. And obviously I'm just, I'm, I'm thrilled you enjoyed it. Um, so yeah. Do you, I mean, would you recommend Pumpkinhead? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Easy. I mean, yeah. It, like Clearly anyone, I who, would. anyone who listens to our show and enjoys what we do and hasn't seen it, like it's just, it's a no brainer. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think it's fantastic. And I think in that way that, uh, you know, if, as you can sometimes get in the mood for like that eighties era kind of monster flick, like, yeah, get to there's, I mean, pumpkin head could easily be found in the upside down. Like, I mean, he's, he's that he's, of you know, born of that kind of uh substance. So I yeah I definitely highly recommend Pumpkinhead for obvious reasons, um, and so that brings this episode to a close. If you will, if you will permit me, uh, just about maybe forty five seconds here that was completely unexpected. Um, listeners uh, may have uh, heard me reference the past couple of weeks um, a good friend of mine who has been battling a uh, a, a sickness uh, an illness. Um, and, uh, I was, I was very saddened to learn this past week, um, as you're listening to this, that, uh, my good friend, Randy Ashburn has moved on and, um, and he's, he's left us, uh, he leaves behind a profound, uh, legacy of love and of faith. And, um, he's, he was a very, very special friend to me. And I'm very, very sad that he's no longer with us. I bring him up to reference one of his, um, his, uh, little catchphrases that he would say, to so many of us, there would be times where we were hanging out in his house and uh, there would be a big group of like a do- dozen or so of us. And he would say, OK, stop for a second and look around and just bask in the wonder of the fact that our stories couldn't finish without each other. Hmm. And um, that's lovely. And I think that's really um, I think that's really special and it's really lovely. And uh, I know listeners are not going to automatically know who he is, but I wanted to sort of formally put it out there that uh, I, I loved Randy and uh, still love him and uh, very, very sad that he's gone and express in honor and tribute to him and in a spirit that I still embrace uh, that I'm thankful for you, Nathan, very, very much. And I want to sit in this moment, even by extension, maybe to our listeners in the wider podcast sure. world and just and just ponder for a second how our stories couldn't have finished without each other. And I'm really thankful for that. And uh, and I think that's really lovely. And uh, and as we say on every episode uh, that we can, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and it is not the end of the conversation. And in that spirit, we encourage you, dear listener and dear friends, to fear nothing else and be on your way rejoicing. And uh, uh, next week, uh, we will be having a very special What Scares Us with uh, a very special guest. Um, if you want to check it out, you will go to uh, find... 47 meters down the Mandy Moore and Claire Holt uh, shark film and Matthew uh, Modine Matthew Modine's in it he is he is sort of uh, 
for for a couple scenes. Um, so check out 47 Meters Down, and we'll see you right back here next week. Nathan, as always, thank you very, very much, my friends. Absolutely. See you guys. Bye. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. Start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for all the latest episodes and news, as well as for merchandise and how to contact us. You can follow us on Twitter, at The Fear of God, on Instagram, at Fear of God Podcast, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com for our artwork, to Lee Wright and Reed Lackey for our theme music, and to Tyler Smith and MoreThanOneLesson.com for making our show possible. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.